Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Welcome our speakers and welcome our listeners to the Public Health Power Hour. This is a weekly clubhouse meetup where we discuss the relationship between personal health and public health. And to us, public health means everything that surrounds you that makes good health possible. It means clean air and water. It means access to medicine and healthy foods and places to get exercise. It also means culture, supportive culture and removing barriers like bias. And we'll hear today about all the kinds of active transport it means too. And we think this has never been a more important conversation. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us we have so much more to do to protect people's health. My name's Steve Hamill. I started my career going door-to-door for environmental and students' rights, and three years after three years and thousands, tens of thousands of conversations, I decided to bring uh, to try and work on a more population level and moved into advocacy, advertising, and digital communications work for social good. And now I work at um, Vital Strategies, the global, global public health organization, as the vice president for policy, advocacy, communication. And I love working here because we work to improve public health around the world, but we remain deeply committed to that to the experiences and perspectives of people all around the world and of our partners in country and people from all walks of life. And conversations like this are our way of unearthing those kinds of things. We started this clubhouse because we want to build a community of people who want to reimagine public health so that it's more closer to the center of commerce and social and civic life. And we're here to learn about different areas of public health, to listen um, and share different perspectives on important issues. And we have a different focus topic each week, but we also want to take a look at the big picture each week. And we've got some great discussions coming up. Next week, we'll be talking about NCDs and COVID. Um, The week following about how big oil and tobacco and food companies use advertising to gaslight us. Um, And if you have a topic you'd like to cover, um, please drop us an email at powerhour at vitalstrategies.org. But I'm excited to get to this week's topic, cities, cycling, active transport, and health. I do want to note that we see these weekly chats as a, as a way of engaging in open dialogue, and all the speakers on stage are participating in their personal capacity, and their statements and views represent their personal points of view. Um, we will be recording the show um, as, and, and only calling out those speakers who are on stage right now and have consented to be recording. We have fantastic experts on stage 
Claudia, I'd like to start with you. Maybe you can kind of set the stage on this topic. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Claudia Adriazola-Steele to the stage. She's the Director of Health and Road Safety at the World Resources Institute Ross Center for Sustainable Cities. She works at the intersection of sustainable mobility, climate change, equity, and public health. Um, what? Uh, why is active transport a growing field of interest and what problems it addressing and is it addressing and I know we're going to talk a lot about bikes and bike lanes today but I also know that active transport is a lot more than that what do we mean when we say active transport thank you very much Steve um, I think it's a basic right for human beings to be able to be active we need to move. Our bodies deteriorate very fast when we don't move. Um, to just understand what is the impact, the recommendation from the World Health Organization is that a human being, an adult human being, should have 30 minutes or more of physical activity at least five times a week. For children, that is even more. Right. If we have adolescents, they should be uh, having physical activity at least one hour and uh, even younger children a little bit more. So it is absolutely essential that humans move to be able to be healthy. Um, it can trigger chronic diseases. It can trigger depression, anxiety. Now, if you connect that statement to what we are going through for the last year and a half because of the pandemic, a lot of people in many, many countries, particularly in the developing world, have not been able to move out of their houses. They have been in lockdown trying to protect their health. Um, before the pandemic, Steve, we already had a growing issue with physical activity, one that has been on the site of the most uh, prestigious uh, public health organizations such as WHO. Uh, the Lancet, for example, estimates that every year before the pandemic, five million people will lose their lives prematurely because of physical inactivity. Um, we know that uh, this generation of children will be the first generation that will have a life expectancy that will be lower than their parents because of physical inactivity. So it is an absolutely critical issue, Steve, that we are facing, and uh, we need to work on that. I, I would say active transport is a good way to say it, but some people do not need to even talk about transport, right? They just need that physical activity. They just need to be able to move around, um, even recreationally. Thank you for setting the table. And Mariana, I'd like to invite you to build a bit on that. Um, Mariana um, is from Vital Strategies, working as a senior program manager in the Partnership for Healthy Cities initiative in Latin America. And um, Mariana, have you seen that kind of 
um, what Claudia spoke of, you know, has COVID-19 sparked new interest in making cities more, you know, walkable, bikeable, active? What's the trend you've seen in your work supporting cities who are trying to uh, in implement strategies to fight non-communicable diseases? Totally. First, I would like to give a little bit of context. As you were mentioning, um, part of the partnership of Healthy Cities, uh, this is an initiative from Vital Strategies um, that works closely with local governments to implement policies, projects to reduce um, deaths, preventable deaths that are caused by non-communicable diseases and injuries. So this is perfect for the topic that we're talking. And, and, and well, totally, I think uh, first uh, I would like to highlight uh, also a comparison that Claudia mentioned. Um, some other recommendations from the World Health Organization is like citizens um, should walk at least 6,000 steps per day, which is a way to, you know, keep the body active and, of course, have a, a positive health impact. And, and of course, I think um, to deep in a little bit more, like, uh, it's really clear the connection um, of, of this um, impact, positive impact of, of moving towards active mobility can help reduce um diseases such as cancer, uh, heart diseases that now are widely known, um, and also risk factors for COVID-19. I think this is crucial, this moment that we're living to put attention to this topic. As we know, um, cycling uh, can have preventive health benefits for, for the city residents, can help um, touch aspects as obesity that is a risk factor. And and we know that living with an NCDs or non-communicable diseases can worsen the situation of a patient living with COVID-19. So all this together um, with the points that uh, Claudia mentioned, but also how aligns to the current context make well, a, a great call for local governments to move towards uh, implementing these initiatives. And of course, as you mentioned, Latin has been a, a region that had um, respond very well. Uh, I'm really happy to see in the audience, uh, local officials, colleagues, uh, friends that we have moving towards and, and working in different projects across the region. Just to say few and mention few, we can mention um, Santo Domingo in Dominican Republic, Mexico City, Guadalajara in Mexico, Santiago in Chile, Cal in Colombia, and, and I can keep going and going. But um, totally, um, has been a quite great success, um, and and we're looking forward to you know evaluate results and and of course seeing this political will at uh, local level um, moving towards and and just to add um, we saw this trend um, last year actually um, citizens were taking the streets uh, when the pandemic restrictions started they were um, actually. We, in being in isolation, they they start going out, walking, cycling, and that was the best statement for local officials to pay attention to this. Right, uh, we start seeing more people trying to exercise or to to breathe some fresh air. So I think that that has been the great opportunity, and that this boom in the region well has uh, greatly continued. And I'm really excited to share in detail uh, more of the success that is that we have registered. I definitely want to come back to you and here's literally some specific examples. Have you paint a picture, you know, what are people seeing? How are the streets being changed in some specific cities? But you talked about uh, act 
activism and advocacy. And our, our, our the last colleague on stage, Sarah Goodyear, is an expert on this. Uh, she's an activist, a journalist, and co-host of the excellent podcast, The War on Cars. If you care about transport issues, I encourage you to listen to it. Sarah, um, you know, having listened to your show, I know it's, it's partly centered on culture, both car culture, what that means, and the kind of activism we need to create change. Um, and you, you're deeply embedded in this grassroots movement for progress. Um, maybe can you start with what you mean when you say car culture and is car culture changing now because of COVID, you know, or are we on a relentless march back to normal? What's, what's your thought about this moment and the activism around active transport? Well, I think we're at a really crucial moment. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation. Um, I, I really am so honored to be here with people who are doing such such great work. Um, I think we're at a really pivotal moment uh, when people are seeing things, systemic things in all manner of uh, all regions of our society, all, all aspects of our society. Um, that maybe they hadn't seen before. And, and the, the pandemic has really laid bare a lot of the systemic problems we're facing in terms of climate change and equity in our societies. And I believe that car culture is, um, you know, a contributor to some of the worst problems that we're facing. And, and it can be addressing it can be a way of addressing a lot of other issues at the same time. When I talk about car culture, I am speaking mostly from a North American perspective, um, where where the built environment is absolutely uh, unquestioningly constructed to facilitate motor vehicle um, transport and to encourage and and um, you know to encourage people to use single occupancy motor vehicles as their primary mode of transport for everything in their lives from going to the grocery store to going to work taking their kids to school, uh, going to visit a friend. Everything is done with a car. And the way that, that we've constructed our communities, the freedom to move their bodies and to use their bodies for transportation, yes, but also to use their bodies to enjoy the world, to go outside, to be, uh, you know, to walk down a street, to walk in a park, these things in many parts of North America are quite inaccessible for for most people, and we don't have many communities where people can walk easily, walk to work, um, and and it's it's something that has become just part of the wallpaper of life. Nobody nobody really can see it. We call it car blindness on our show. You know, you can be on a street and people. Well, in New York, this happens all the time. People will complain that they, oh, they put a bike share dock in and, and this is a historic neighborhood. And how can you put this, this, uh, this bike share dock in that ruins the historic neighborhood when there are, you know, multiple 3,000 pound uh, vehicles brand new SUVs sitting at the curb. Nobody ever says, oh, those shouldn't be in the historic neighborhood because we're completely blind to cars. We can't see them and we can't see what they're doing. And in addition to what the other speakers have said about um, the importance of emissions um, and, and the importance of, of road safety and, and, and all of that, I'd like to say that 
I think another public health impact of car culture is the way that it isolates human beings from each other. And it, it does, uh, you know, facilitate uh, a world in which you have very little incidental contact with other people in your community. You don't pass people on the street and say hello, maybe stop and chat. Um, and I think that that, that isolation and, and the, the um, frustration and rage that people feel when they're driving and the, the financial burdens of car dependence, all of those contribute to a sort of atomized culture that, that, that you know, exacerbates social divides, that exacerbates inequity, and it makes it difficult to build community. Um, and so as the pandemic uh, encouraged people to get outside, I think in, in many cities, including New York, where I live, um, people suddenly realized how important it was to be able to go outside, to be able to go to the park. That became a safe place to gather with friends. To be able to go and eat outside on the street, it became a place where you could still have community. And I think that we are seeing a real realization of what cars take away from us. At the same time, we're seeing people frightened to use public transport, and a lot of people have bought cars that didn't used to have them. And I've said, oh, people are using cars as PPE during the pandemic. They're thinking that that can protect them from the, from the virus. Um, so I think that there's, there's a big push-pull thing going on in a lot of North American cities, at least, that, um, that needs to be very actively addressed by policymakers and by advocates at the grassroots level. Fascinating. Um, I mean, as you said, you're speaking from your experience and your coverage of the North American context. Claudia, I'd be curious if, if that, what Sarah and Mariana have spoken about, does that ring true for the global picture, this, this trend? Absolutely, Steve. I think I completely agree with Mariana and Sarah. And data that we are coming, we are seeing that is coming out right now on the impact of, um, you know, the lack of physical activity at least in uh, the last year and a half is very scary, right? It's almost the boiling frog syndrome, right? Like it's so slow in communities where you don't have the information of how important it is to be physically active, not only communities, uh, but also the decision makers that is leading to scary outcomes, as I said. In Canada, for example, we know that only 4.8% of children um, had the, met their minimal WHO um, physical activity requirement. And in the youth, so we are talking about kids 11 to 18 years old, only 0.6% have met that uh, threshold. This is terrible. It's absolutely scary. And in the UK, uh, they are already following the impact on mental health. And we are seeing an increase in mental health issues from little kids, 5 to 10 years old. They were presenting 10% of the population uh, health issues. Now it has doubled. It's 20%. 
And when we talk about uh, teenagers, that is even higher. So we see here a big problem that can be addressed. And I think one of the main issues is to communicate carefully, you know, and we have a lot of public health experts that can do that, um, on how important it is to keep our populations. I'm focusing quite a bit about children here, but it's for everyone, for keeping all our populations physically active. We know now a lot more about the virus, so we don't need to be locked in the houses. We can walk, we can cycle, um, but that needs purpose from the decision makers in planning. We also know in parallel, Steve, that the first cause of death for children and young people ages 5 to 29 are traffic crashes. So we cannot just say to people, look, get your child a bicycle or that bicycle that you had uh, all full of dust in the garage, get it out and put him to bike because we might be creating another public health issue. That's why I'm talking about a purposeful planning, understanding what is the impact in planning to be able to give people this space. It can really be a game changer for communities so that they don't slide down uh, into even more public health concerns as the pandemic eases. Yeah, that's that. That data is so smart, uh, stark. I mean, we've heard just in the first 15 minutes, you know, how important this is for health, both physical and mental, for the planet. Um, as you pointed out, um, Sarah, for developing community, and the the data is there. As is this growing sort of thirst uh, for real to make cities more livable, more walkable, Mariana. In your work, can you can you help us give us an example of some of how this momentum has translated into actual work on, in one of the cities you work with? Like, what are we seeing? What's a city that's made a significant change? What does that change look like? Thank you, Steve. Yes, totally. Um, first, I just want to say that it's really exciting to see this um, shift and how local officials are understanding all the implications that have been mentioned. Um, and of course, the creating first that have to invest in this type of, of interventions. We have seen different projects. Um, I just want uh, to highlight we can see we have seen from making streets safer, like um, you know, making intervention in critical points where we have, as Claudia was mentioning, um, high fatalities rates, uh, which is, of course is an intervention to um, make safe, um, safer streets and incentivize people to walk more and, and transport to their place by walking. But the most prominent uh, way um, or project that we actually have registered and collaborated with has have been um, projects around cycling and projects that are promoting um, bicycle as a way to transport um, in the city. And of course, uh, the work has been from design to analysis to understanding the current scenarios to the implementation of cycling infrastructure. I would like to mention, um, um, of course, for for sharing, um, to share um, more about the cities that I'm from in Mexico, 
I would like to bring uh, Guadalajara, for example. Guadalajara, there is fantastic political will um, from local officials, um, has been uh, a city highlight for the great work moving towards safer cities. And, and they uh, start uh, implementing temporary infrastructure. They start implementing 13 kilometers that is equal around eight miles of uh, cycling infrastructure for for citizens just like to move uh, in the midst of the pandemic to essential places, um, you know, to buy um, uh, food, to to go and pick up medicine. So that success and the well-recognized, um, you know, like uh, how, how the project was taken, incentivized them to invest on, on local infrastructure. So that led to have a permanent infrastructure that has been constantly evaluated and, of course, um, uh, benefit more than 500 cyclists that are using on a daily basis uh, this infra infrastructure. So that is really, really exciting. Also, it's quite important to mention that this type of infrastructure have helped to connect um, specific routes. And, and we will talk at some point, I, I hope so, on vulnerability or, you know, like a more a social approach, but have connect um, specific um, areas to uh, mass transportation, which is really, really relevant, uh, like, you know, to have a, a more multimodal or, or transportation and where we can provide more access uh, to communities to move in a more efficient and, of, of course, healthier and sustainable way. Uh, another city that I will come up that I would like to share with you is Mexico City. Mexico City, well, of course, is, has been on the spotlight um, on having um, hundreds of kilometers of bike lanes. Um, around 170 kilometers uh, is equivalent to 100 miles um, of, of bike lanes at city level. And during the pandemic, they found out the opportunity to continue with this work. There was, of course, it's, hard, uh, it's a hard decision for local govern governments because they're dealing with a pandemic. They're dealing with, you know, um, health services. They're, they're dealing to purchase medicines. And it's a great, great call seeing that they are also paying attention to this topic and and they decide to include and add it to their local plans 50 more kilometers of temporary lanes. This led to permanent infrastructure around 40 kilometers, uh, two-way lanes um, in one of the city's most important venues, uh, avenues, that is Avenida uh, Insurgentes. Uh, and I see local friends uh, over here that will understand how how busy is this avenue and what, what are the implications of putting infrastructure in this um, avenue and in this avenue. So that, that is, has been a great success. Of course, there are many analyses. We were able to support through the PHC, through the Partnership for Healthy Cities, all the analysis to move towards this um, permanent infrastructure. And well, now we see the political will that the mayor is investing more than 100 million pesos that is equivalent to $4 million in this infrastructure. And at last, I, I think this is exciting. Um, this is more an original um, uh, point of view, um, Cali, Colombia, which of course the, this implementation comes from a, a diverse team and experts and across the PHC, but it's just exciting how they decide to bring the cycling um, culture to the community in the midst of the pandemic. They decide to in, implement a shared bike bike uh, program to incentivize cycling across the city, and also they put on the disposal of citizens uh, bike doctor, which is fascinating concept that uh, 
they you can bring your bike um and also well they these uh bike doctors will be fixed for you you know incentivizing that you can use the local infrastructure that has been unique um on its kind and and of course that through the phc um we have been supporting uh the program uh finance communication campaigns and of course like you know the hiring of these back doctors to keep uh, providing services to the community. Around 1,000 bicycles have been, you know, uh, repaired, uh, making, you know, increasing the excitement to use uh, the local infrastructure. So I think these are really specific um, Latin, Latin America target examples that I can share with you, but it's really, really, uh, I think, fascinating to see how um, the shift or seeing the public space had changed, how the health implications have been understood. And I think is what we need for local governments to have the political will, have that um, interest and data, community engagement, having people on the streets claiming for the public space are the best ways to moving towards this. I love that uh, innovation of the bike doctor. That's fascinating and so encouraging to see real, real progress happening. Sarah, I know that that, that 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 question of political will and grassroots has been a fascination and something you've covered a lot. Do you want to? Do you have a thoughts about uh, the, the what it takes to generate political will when it's not there? Well, I think Mariana touched on it beautifully by talking about, um, you know, when governments pilot. Uh, bike lanes or plazas or whatever it is, uh, public space that's accessible to people, they can demonstrate um, what what it would look like, because it is so hard sometimes for people to imagine that things could be any different from what they have known their whole lives. And you put in some of these pilot uh, things, and, 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 it, and they immediately develop a constituency. Um, you know, street-side dining in New York, which was a result of the pandemic because it wasn't safe to dine indoors and restaurants needed to survive, now that's being extended for another year and it's becoming part of the culture of the city to have people dining on the sidewalk and the street. Now, there are a lot of issues that need to be ironed out about, uh, you know, public space and who gets to use it. But just by showing people these things, then you can build popular support, and then politicians have cover to do things that they might have been frightened to do before, because the forces uh, you know, that are trying to keep our streets completely for cars are very strong. You've got the fossil fuel lobbies, you've got the automaker lobbies, and you've got a lot of other people who are very invested in the status quo. So for advocates and governments to work together on pilot programs that will just show people, hey, there's a different way to live, there's a different way to be, and it's nice, and it's fun, and it feels good, and it allows you to move your body, as Claudia was making the point, we, you know, we should have the freedom to move. We need the freedom to move, or else it's going to kill us. And and so I think that... that that, that giving policy, I, I talked to um, Paris is another city that did a lot during the pandemic. They put temporary bike lanes in um, and and then the government just moved. They said, we're going to make this permanent because they had they had won an election. They said the majority of people voted for us. They knew what we were intending to do and we're just going to do it. 
and they just did it. And I think that that's, there need to be more policymakers and politicians who have the courage to do the things that they know are supported by the majority, but there may be a very loud and in some cases a very well-financed minority that's opposing them. And so, you know, it's really exciting to hear about what's happening in Mexico and in Cali. I love that idea of the bike doctors also. But yeah, you, you, you have to show people what they can do and advocates and government can work together to do that. Um, and sometimes advocates are the ones who will, they'll put out some traffic cones in a street and, and show what it's like if the traffic is slower. And then that can get adopted as well. So I think it's advocates working together with interested policymakers to build consensus with pilot programs and then the people with the political will to, to just say, we're going to do it, we're going to take the heat and we're going to go ahead and make these things permanent. And that's how we move forward. I love that, you know, calling out the, the push me, pull you of political leadership and public support um, and, and how we generate it. My, my uh, pers- one of my personal takeaways on, on what you just shared, Sarah, is New York City, where I live, was one of the first uh, among the first cities to implement indoor smoke-free air laws and almost immediately when you could go out to bars or restaurants and and experience clean air with that that didn't have secondhand smoke in it when i would go to other places i would be you know shocked to be kind of exposed to this and it's surprising how how fast people can adapt to a new normal when you help them understand or reimagine that the spaces around them can be more supportive to health. Um, Claudia. Thank you very much, Steve. I think, um, you know, what Mariana, Sarah, and you are mentioning is absolutely important. This um, year and a half has shown us that we need the space more than ever, right? Uh, but what will happen once the pandemic eases? And we need to focus on that because, um, you know, being physically active is critical. And we have a lot of hurdles in our cities to be able to be physically active for everyone, right? One and the most critical one, I think, is traffic crashes, the risk of being in the street uh, for an adult, but it is heightened for children and for elderly people. So we have to start preparing our spaces. And I, I love the idea, Sarah, of balancing a little bit more the space for uh, automobiles and the space for people that are not using an automobile at that point. Um, speed is a critical issue then in cities. Paris, that has been mentioned several times in this conversation, has made the decision of setting the speed limit in the city to 30 kilometers per hour. That is about 17 miles per hour. The reason being that us humans cannot absorb kinetic energy Uh, Our bodies have just simply not been built to be able to absorb um, that energy, the speed energy. And um, we are extremely vulnerable. We can die very easily. We can get seriously injured. 
So we need to work on speed when we want people to be physically active, walking and cycling. We need to focus on setting speeds that are safe. A couple of other uh, thoughts, um, climate change, the ones that are uh, here in the United States, we are experiencing an unprecedented heat wave, fires. Um, you know, you see Canada, a place that is in all our minds cold, uh, having these heat waves. Um, so we need to act. And the time to act for climate change is only five more years where we can still keep things not spiraling out of control. And uh, the transport sector is a critical sector to be able to get to the famous 1.5 degrees Celsius um, that we want to achieve. So 23% of the global house uh, green emissions uh, come from the transport sector. And if we will start, for example, moving more and achieving our destinations um, with physical activity, right? Uh, walking or cycling or, um, you know, taking the what is called the last kilometer or the last mile after we take mass transportation, uh, but walking or cycling, that can really decrease them dramatically uh, the greenhouse um, emissions in our cities. Let's remember that around the world, 35% of all trips are 10 kilometers or less, and 50% of all trips are 20 kilometers or less. But you have seen that the conversation about climate change and transport has been tilted quite a bit into only electric vehicles. Uh, so we have to be very aware of that and just say, look, we don't want to change one uh, type of vehicle that is uh, powered by diesel, oil, to other vehicles that will be powered by electricity. We really want a system change where we can allow for physical activity to be really an option for everyone. So I think we have to look at the future, Steve, and to start planning and thinking how we can build this infrastructure that is safe for people in cities so that we can ask them to walk and bike. Thank you. Fantastic. You you mentioned climate, and um, I want to bring up a you know related topic between you know climate and the inequitable uh, impacts of COVID um, and last year's you know global reckoning around race and around equity. There's I think public health practitioners are being asked and want to you know act and operate and and support strategies that increase equity and it seems to me there's a it's it's a no-brainer to make it easier for people of all income levels to work and live and play in um, cities and that you know cars are on some level a luxury product but are there other equity dimensions to active transport and active transport uh, issues? Um, if I may add, yes, one, for example, in gender, uh, we know that women 
uh, do a lot more trips, shorter trips. And if there is one vehicle in the household, the vehicle will be used by the man and the woman will be using public transportation or will walk or bike. So there is a direct relationship with gender, for example, one that uh, we can definitely highlight and, and measure. Yes, I would like to add as well, um, I will say that a part of gender, which is, in, I will say, inside of the range of social equity, um, I would like to add income as well. I think the pandemic uh, hard hit um, the economy of many families um, have been seen as well, um, how people have used the bike as well uh, in order to save uh you know, money and not pay public transportation. So I will say like having a perspective of, you know, um, vulnerable communities or more disadvantaged um, uh, as well could be a, a great way to uh, map uh, where the trips are made and also to plan according to this. Uh, um, and of course, like move towards and incentivizing through other um, initiatives, uh, the topic that this should be like a cycling community will be disseminated and not only like um, target uh, active mobility because of the need of doing it from the economic perspective, more likely for the understanding of the great impacts that it has. And of course, like uh, on a more accepted way, uh, as talking for the cultural um, aspect in Mexico um, is, is people see it better if you have a car is uh, if you use a bike is like at least in parts of the region is really uh, not taken well. So it's like, I think um, that aspect, covering that aspect will help a lot. Um, and of course uh, we need to consider um, when we're talking about active mobility. I do want to say that it seems like we've teased out the kind of ingredients to change, which are this technical interventions with evidence behind it, you know, resources, to, to invest in active transport and that, you know, those resources are connected to political leadership and political leadership is connected to that kind of community level organizing and advocacy we just heard out, we heard about, we heard about from Sarah. So we have the ingredients and, and I hope each of you left a little more inspired to work on active cycling. Um, I hope we can have each of you um, for continuing who's speaking back on the Public Health Power Hour in the future. And I just want to close out in the last minute with somebody, each person, something each person can do to advance public health. Um, come back next week. Uh, it's a little bit later. Um, we have a fantastic discussion around NCDs and COVID, around how the pandemic has impacted the NCD agenda. Um, Nina Renshaw from the NCD Alliance will be here. A colleague from Ghana will help us examine some national agenda issues. And the week after, we'll be talking about how big oil, tobacco, and food use advertising to hide the health harms they cause and how creatives are fighting back. Um, and for this week, I'd like to encourage you to commit to further action promoting active transport. First, if you listen to podcasts, definitely check out uh, Sarah's War on Cars podcast. It's fantastic. And second, I want I, I hope each person commits to a few minutes of research. We heard today about how important local grassroots advocacy is. Um, here in New York City, I follow an excellent group called Transportation Alternatives. It took some Googling to find. Sarah talked about the Streets blog, um, Streets blog resource. Um, and, you know, as I think, you know, most of us in this room are public health 
folks and, and improving active transport is going to be getting active locally, um, speaking out about the public health benefits of designing cities around these strategies. And um, I just want to, again, thank each of our speakers and each of you for being in the room today um, and for being part of the Public Health Power Hour. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.